welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Sunday Deep Dive episode. My name is Brett Schaefer. I'm here with Ryan Henderson, and we have Brad Freeman back. Brad, you took a little absence last week. You were on the DL. Uh, medical injury. I don't know how much you want to share, but extreme how are you feeling? Sport. Extreme sports. Uh, how are we feeling this week, and are you ready to talk after that? Yeah, so 10-day DL. Uh, I, I made my debut with a ball league performance for, for the year and got a pretty nasty pickle and rundown, and I uh, walked away with a concussion. So um, I know it sounds pretty heroic, but but try not to be too intimidated. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a man. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost back to normal and, and definitely good to go to talk about Afterpay. All right, we're going to talk Afterpay, but before we do, we have to talk about our sponsor, Potential Multibaggers. Potential Multibaggers is a service on Seeking Alpha with, sorry, Seeking Alpha that aims to find stocks that can go up 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. Some of the picks that they had in the past, and we can't share all of the, you know, the recent ones, obviously, that's proprietary, but they picked Shopify at 77, C Limited at $54 a share, Lavongo at $24 a share before it turned into Teladoc. Um, and Chris, who we've had on the show before, he invests in all of these picks himself. He alerts you when he buys and what. He's constantly communicating with you so he can help you not only find good stocks, but manage your portfolio as well. Um, anything? Okay, yeah, we got to do the would, uh, call to action. Oh, Ryan, you have something else I'd too. also add, I think he's one of the, uh, I think emotional maturity is his strength. You yes. see it on Twitter. Yeah. He, uh, I think he has a lot of temperance. Am I using the right, right Good there? temperament. Temperament. Temperament, yes. And speaking of that, if you want to become a multi, as they uh, as they call themselves, you can go on Seeking Alpha and look it up uh, at from growth or from growth to value, excuse me, Google it, or you can go to at from value on Twitter, find it pretty easy to find. All right, let's talk after pay. Ryan, do you want to introduce the company? Yeah, so it's one of the world's leading buy now, pay later payments providers. So if you're not familiar with the way that kind of model works, let's say I'm shopping at underarmor.com or gymshark.com or I think that Lululemon, any, uh, any Lululemon.com, they, those are all three customers actually. Um, and let's say I find a few things I like, I add them to my cart and then I go to check out, you fill out all the shipping stuff and then it goes and off, it, it says, what, what are you going to use for your payments? So you can use like credit, debit card, those are the standard ones, PayPal, or you can use Afterpay. And so Afterpay allows customers to split the order into four separate payments interest-free. So the customer would pay 25% upfront when they do it that way except I believe Afterpay fronts the cash and you just pay Afterpay the 25%. Then the other three payments would be done every two weeks. So it's a six week process. I think you can pay at any point between then before the six weeks, but it's basically a micro loan with no interest. And Afterpay, the way they make money is they take a percentage of the total order, which it calls its Afterpay income margin. Um, So this was about 3.8% of the total order. And so if you're sitting there thinking like- And that's like take rate, correct? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're thinking why why on earth would the merchant just give away 3.8% of the order, it 
incentivizes more spending. And so average order value, the basket size went way up. Uh, a lot of the merchants saw it go way up when Afterpay started getting offered because people, uh, you know, they automatically think they can afford more because they're paying it out over a longer period. So it just makes sense for merchants to start to offer it. Um, as far as like for Afterpay side, I believe they go through a small background check when someone signs up. If that person doesn't pay by the due date, they get a late fee. And if a late fee isn't paid, then the customer isn't allowed to use Afterpay again. Yeah. So new customers can kind of have, you know, they might have a decent loss rate on them, but once they kind of churn out any bad customers, um, it's almost like a filtering process when they get them on. So their theory is over like, say a five-year period, that loss rate on a certain cohort will go down over time. And there is, there is a bit of a, so this is more for smaller stuff. I think the av or the max order size is like a thousand dollars, uh, 2000 Australian dollars. So yeah, similar. Yeah. Oh, okay. Probably 1500 or something like that. But uh, if you th there is like a legal classification where if you uh, offer something that extends out longer than six weeks, it has to be qualified as a loan. So it has to be interest bearing. Whereas if it's less than six weeks, which is what this is, it can be interest free. And the reason that they keep it so low is because, I mean, if you're paying something that's really expensive, and this is sort of where a firm, which is one of their competitors, uh, dabbles in is the... Uh, it, it, if you're paying for something that's really large, you can't really pay it down in six weeks. You might as well just pay it all up front. So that's mm -hmm. why they've found this kind of little middle ground. Um, but I'll get into the history. Anthony Eisen and Nick Molnar co-founded Afterpay in 2014, might've been 2015, uh, in Sydney, Australia. Molnar grew up in Sydney and he used to sell jewelry on eBay in college. And he apparently became the number one Australian jewelry seller on eBay. Um, so he's grown to be pretty good at marketing. And then Anthony was his neighbor and they came up with the idea and launched it when I think Nick, who's the CEO now is 28 years old. Uh, and then basically their marketing strategy was they encouraged all the early customers or the consumers to ask their merchants or their favorite retailers to accept the solution. So they kind of did the marketing forum. They now have more than 75,000 active merchants. They went public in 2016 at a market cap of 125 million. So think about that. Uh, founded in 2014, 2015, $125 million market cap IPO yeah. within and, a uh, year or two. Yeah. And I'll, I'll hit valuation later. It's a lot bigger today. So yeah. So it grew really quick. Uh, it, it, I think they had exceptional product market fit. I think a lot of people were looking for this. Uh, do you want to hit industry and landscape? Yeah. So it's hard to evaluate because they're kind of going after consumer credit here, but they're also trying to kill credit cards. It's a big part of their value or proposition to consumers is dump your credit card that has interest, join Afterpay. Um, so that is a large part of the consumer credit market. So it's kind of weird. They're trying to kill it and join it at the same time. Uh, but projections for the buy now, pay later market or BNPL, as you might see it in like stories and stuff like that, that's referencing things like Afterpay. So it's projected to grow at a high double digit rate in the US over the next decade, possibly hitting $300 billion in annual volume. Again, these are estimates though, and right now it's a lot smaller. Um, as of the Fed's estimates though, um, and by that I mean the Federal Reserve, consumer credit card debt in the US is a tad under $1 trillion. So you could argue that's part of their market opportunity as well, although it isn't the entire, you know, there's some things like Ryan said that aren't meant to be paid under this buy now, play later format. Um, and total, you know, transaction volume for credit cards are in the trillions. Uh, so the market opportunity is clearly large. And then competitors include, and there's many out there, but the big ones include Klarna, which is from Europe, Affirm, which is from the US. And then there's PayPal, 
which is pretty global, but from the US and PayPal is, you know, does a lot of other things, but they just announced it, I think either a few months ago, I remember seeing that. Don't know if the product's rolled out yet, but that's a big one to watch because they already have hundreds of millions of users established. And obviously, you know, banks could start doing this as well. Anyone that has access to consumers' uh, personal finance. I think there's also one, I, I think that's headquartered in like Minneapolis or something. It's called Sezzle. Sezzle, yeah, there's a, there's a ton. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, Brad, you want to go management ownership? Yeah. And I mean, I've heard rumors just going back to com- competitors that Upstart's going to join in and you, you, you have too. to think MasterCard, MasterCard and Visa and, and Amex are eventually going to try and emulate this if it becomes that successful, which it looks like it is becoming. Um, but in terms of management and ownership, uh, pretty large representation, 55% of the floats held by institutions and 36% is held by insiders. Uh, so always like to see that. Um, co-founder and CEO. Well, we talked about the founders already, but I just, I listen to Nick and Anthony talk a little bit. Um, for those of you who know me, you know, I love Olo and I love Noah Glass and, and I got Noah Glass vibes very much so from them. Um, young, energetic, hungry, modest, and, and, and really enjoyed listening to them speak. They seem very bright. Uh, the CFO, so just for an executive team highlight, is the former uh, senior vice president of finance at Visa. So in terms of who you want in that CFO role, I can't really um, imagine a better person. She's also worked as a former uh, vice president at Schwab. Um, so pretty impressive management team and, and a lot of ownership too. Yeah, do we have, and it's tough because we don't have them on, uh, they're only on the OTC market in the United States. It's tough because they're listed in Australia. We don't have the full, like, do they even have a 20F? They might have, a, I think they have a 20F. I, but I couldn't find any filings like that they have extensive annual reports but but yeah it's it's a little tougher you're not getting all the insights as you might get with a large united states company yeah and they report on a half year basis so those of you that love your quarterly reports this might not be the company for you yeah it's been a while uh brad what do you have yeah and just a note on um insider and institutional ownership i checked about 10 different sources and it it varied pretty widely so this is kind of a mean and, and, and a smoothing average of that, but uh, but yeah, just keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of the ballpark of where we're at there. All right, I'll hit valuation quick. Uh, market cap is about $21.44 billion from when I researched it um, a day ago. So that could change a bit by the time you're listening to this. Ticker is APT in Australia for people who have access to that market, but AFTPY for those that need to access the OTC markets in the United States. Um, since we're almost at the end of fiscal year 21 for them, which ends in June, and they're growing so rapidly as Ryan will get to, I'm gonna try to extrapolate the last six months and kind of just blend those together to get a trailing valuation metric. Uh, because if I use the trailing 2020 numbers, it's, it makes it look like they're training at way too high of a valuation than they actually are. But like I'll, you'll, you'll hear these numbers, it's still at a high valuation. So their trailing price to sales under that metric would be 33.2. Trailing price to that net margin, uh, sorry, gross net margin or some, uh, I wrote the acronym here and I forgot to actually write it down. Uh, it's similar to like a contribution profit, but they yeah. use different metrics. Uh, so price to that would be about 63.4. So it's still pretty expensive. And then price to EBITDA is close to 300. I was looking at stock-based compensation too, about 200 million options outstanding versus about 289 million share count. So not bad on that front, but we'll hit a little bit of share dilution. And then obviously with this stock, you are definitely not buying it because of the valuation. Um, you know, those numbers yeah. are optically expensive. Well, every investment's a value investment. That's right. That's so, right. We, we do know that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 
Yeah, it, 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 yeah, they are optically expensive. And I'll also, as I dive into the earnings, they use different terminology for a lot of their metrics. So you, I'm going to try to kind of convert them and translate them to our standard metrics. So when they say underlying sales, that's kind of the eye-popping number. That's basically the GMV or GPV. Yep. That's uh, they had seven point six billion dollars in underlying sales. That was up one hundred sixteen percent year over year. Uh, the take rate on that was flat year over year at three point eight percent. First, the first half of twenty twenty one, their revenue was three hundred twenty three million dollars, up eighty nine percent year over year. Their trailing twelve month, if you base it off that first half number, was around five hundred fifty four million dollars. Uh, they had a gross margin of seventy three and a half percent. Active customers grew 80% to 13.1 million. Their EBITDA margin, EBITDA margin excluding significant items, which but it's I not, guess, they don't have like some of the stuff's missing, but it, you know what I mean? It's kind yeah. of, you don't know what's getting adjusted that well. Uh, that was about 11.5%. I, I mean, I think if they peeled back a lot of the spending, it is like at its core, high margin business, right? Because it's kind of asset light. Uh, but then their after-tax loss was $61 million. Pre-tax was pretty similar to that. And then active merchants in North America, which is an area they're really trying to expand into, grew 141% to $18,000. Um, sorry, I think that might have been active. No, that was active that's, merchants. That's merchants. And UK, they're in UK under like a different brand called ClearPay. That was up a ton too. So they're expanding into the United Kingdom as that well. Was, yeah, that was also from a much smaller base. Yeah, um, yep. Marketing expenses were about 22% of gross profit. Um, lower than I would have expected. Uh, I mean, all in all, the, the business is growing at a rapid rate. And I, I think you're still sort of seeing the adoption of or, or the power of the product market fit and how much customers, especially our age, Gen Z, millennial, really like uh, this kind of offering. Yeah, it seems like they're getting a lot of growth and they're seeing the operating leverage. All right, Brad, do you want to hit balance sheet while we wrap up the first half? I'd love to. So balance sheet and liquidity uh, looks pretty good. Not not perfect, but pretty good. Uh, $354 million in cash and equivalents. They have another $686 million in what they call undrawn warehouse capacity, which is basically just a lot of credit revolvers that are untapped. And this gets them to their uh, total liquidity metric of $1.1 billion. Um, they have $93 million in interest-bearing borrowings and convertible notes. 1% of that is current, so due within the next 12 months. And the rest of it is not um, the interest on their borrowings carry rates of one to three percent, uh, so pretty darn strong. Um, yeah, no complaints there. Yeah, and the the, the debt and the the interest bearing stuff and all these warehouse facilities are important for Afterpay because when they basically have to bridge the gap between when the merchant gets their money and when the customer pays, uh, and that's a pretty quick cycle. It's like six weeks, but they still have a lot of customer receivables, which can hurt them a bit on a cash flow perspective. And that's kind of one of my, gonna be one of my low lights later. But again, having the, for a company like this, the balance sheet's a little bit more important because they're almost acting like a bank in, in some way. They're, they're financing a lot of this stuff, so. Yeah, and I guess we probably should have looked at the dilution numbers or I should have, but uh, I imagine they're doing a lot of that. Uh, a lot of any financing of growth where they can't do it from their own cash, I imagine they're doing it through equity. Yeah, and they have a few. Yeah, they have like warehouse facilities in all the different countries they operate in. Not not too too much complicated, too many complications to discuss in the podcast. But yeah, it, it's part it's part of the game there. Um, all right, I think that's gonna do it. Let's take an ad break, and then we're gonna get to the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. 
or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we're going to hit anecdotal evidence, customer stories. Um, Brad, do you have anything? You ever used Afterpay or any of these products? Buy now, pay later. I guess I'll sound like a boomer here, a 23-year-old boomer, but I've never, I've never used a, I guess credit cards are buy now, pay later, but you're, you're paying interest. So that's not cool anymore. <laughs> but, yeah, but, uh, yeah. No, I've, I've never used this before. Yeah, I've never, uh, no, I, I've never used Afterpay. I don't know anyone that's used Afterpay. Um, but then again, they're just sort of expanding into North America right now. Uh, so we're kind of seeing that adoption. Uh, it's kind of early days. Yeah, they. I think 2019 was the year they launched big into the United States, so barely two years at all. Um, I don't really have any, I don't know, I've never used any of these things. We're kind of not big spenders. Use Cash App, which is kind of a competitor in a way because they give cash back. Well, for a card, yeah. I mean, they do cash back. I mean, in anything, all of us are using competitors then because it's really just, you know, it's just spending. Yeah. But yeah, the I mean the concept seems strong. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's tough though because you were making that joke, Brad, that it feels so similar to a credit card that you just worry. Like, uh, I mean, are you guys just branding this as a different way? But there are some nuances. Um, all right, let's. Or Ryan, do you have anything or no? No. All right, let's get the competitive advantages. Uh, Brad, what do you have for this one? I'm going to go back to the management team. So to compliment uh, the, the two co-founders that I was walked away pretty impressed with, I, I, I'm going back to the CFO and I'm going to sound redundant, but in terms of who you want steering the ship and, and running the financial statements, the, the senior VP of finance at Visa, um, um, that, that's perfect. So, so I think having her insight um, in, the, in the executive boardrooms is, is really important and, and I'm going to keep highlighting that. Especially because Visa is the, they're trying to steal market share in a way from them. So, right. I, yeah, I guess I don't know the total story behind her, but I think that's maybe a bit of validation too if she came from Visa and went to Afterpay as to how, uh, what she thinks of the business model. Yeah. Uh, I'll get into mine though. Uh, lead gen is what I put as a competitive advantage. So, when you think about the Afterpay's platform, there's basically two sides. So, they've got the merchant side, they've got the customer side. And they're basically in between. But if you look at it from the merchant's view, there's no reason not to accept everything, right? So, I mean, if there's Sezzle, there's Klarna, and then there's Afterpay, you want to basically whatever, you want to grant the most access to the customer as possible. However they can pay, make it easy on them. But, so there's not really a huge, uh, I don't think there- Unless Afterpay gives you a deal. Yeah, I mean, they have lower rates, I believe, than Klarna. But- Well, it's uh, hidden. Some, they have- you know, at a bigger, you know, like Under Armour or somewhere, Lululemon, I think they give them discounts. But. So then, yeah, I guess there's a reason to go exclusive there. But I think, you know, if you limit uh, going completely exclusive with just Afterpay uh, can be a little bit risky if other people use Cecil or something like that. But I think the big differentiator is on the customer side. They have, there's sort of like an aggregator of all these shops. So if you go Afterpay, I think it's Afterpay.com. You can go in and you can basically shop almost like it looks like Octa's Launchpad kind of thing where for B2B, you've got Google Drive, Zoom, 
all your different apps that you use on this Okta sort of uh, secure, landing, yeah, landing the, page. The secure landing page, yeah. Um, it's almost like that just in the way that they're launching you to different retail sites. I think that's valuable. Um, and then obviously a bit of a growth opportunity is that retailers are going to maybe advertise to get front and center on that. Um, I mean, just having being in the mind of the consumers, uh, I think there's more value there um, as far as competitive advantage than maybe on the merchant side. Yeah, there's potential there. And yeah, since the merchants win using the product, it kind of incentivizes them to promote it as well. So hopefully that can give them free marketing. And this is something that uh, it's not really a competitive advantage, but I wanted to mention that the team seems to be executing from a product and marketing perspective at a rate that is way better than the competition. Um, And that's kind of, it could go away immediately. You never know. Someone could leave the company, whatever. But it reminds me a lot of Square like a few years ago. Um, It's a different company, but the way they're marketing their stuff, how unique that stuff is, and then the products that they're rolling out, it's at such a rapid pace. It reminds me of that company. There is... Maybe, okay, maybe it's subtle, but I think there's an advantage to their name being kind of perfect. Yes. Afterpay. Like if you're, if I'm a consumer and I had no idea what Afterpay was because of the name, the title, I could kind of guess. Whereas if I just saw Sezzle, I'd skip right past it. Like, yeah, I don't know what the hell that means. According to, and uh, Hayden Capital wrote a pitch on this is kind of the big, uh, you know, good presentation. We'll probably link it because it's like 30 pages, really detailed on Afterpay. Um, it's a year old now, but it still it still works. Uh, apparently in Australia, where they have the giant the biggest market share, they are now a verb. Like, all right, just afterpay it. Um, but Brett, what do you think about the name? Does that does that bring you in more or better than a firm? Or? I mean, pretty straightforward. Not a not a whole lot of confusion on what they do. Um, so I, I think that's always a good quality in a name for sure. It's yeah. also nice to not have it be like uh, Uber or something. You know, something Uber. pointless where you're like. Yeah. What does that even do? It's kind of, I mean, it reminds me of DoorDash. That's a great name as well. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, but my I, my real competitive advantage is basically this network effect. I mean, think of it in the way of MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal, who have consumers and merchants. Um, it's just classic one, you know. Definitely. Definitely. You know, there's not much else to say there, but let's hit future growth opportunities. Uh, Brad, what do you have here? Yeah, this is more of a near-term future growth opportunity. And um not comparative growth, but just more growth for the sector as a whole that I think will be a tide that lifts all boats. But stimulus dollars will keep flowing through into our economy and the other economies that this um, that that afterpay is operating in. And more more monetary supply is, I mean, it's pretty clear to see how that would be a good thing for this company and, and this industry. Um, it, my other uh, growth opportunity, and this one might be a little weird, but it's so they, they cater to a very young consumer base and, and young people like cryptocurrency. Um, so maybe venturing into Ether and Ripple and Bitcoin as, as potential payment um, plans. I don't know how that would work re- from a regulatory standpoint or from a balance sheet standpoint, um, but it would it would just make Afterpay that much more convenient to use. So Yeah, I might counter on that and say that it is crossing the Rubicon and loaning with crypto can be very dangerous since it's a volatile asset. But that could make sense as a marketing strategy. I know Square has done really well using uh, crypto as a marketing tool. So, And I know they're, they're, uh, it might be good for them to be accepting of it, but I think it's sort of on the merchants to be the ones that are like, yeah. it's kind of on them to accept it, um, whether or not 
because if they don't want to accept it, then I don't think there's any way that Afterpay would use it. Yeah, Brad. Yeah, they. Oh, sorry. They, yeah, they'd have to. They'd have to build out a, a SaaS platform probably in order to to pull that off. In terms of just a full service, um, we 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 supply the the cryptocurrencies. We we run the payment network. We do everything, and it it would be a lot. It would be a huge undertaking for this company, but. Um, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see if them if they or, or anyone else in the space uh, went that route. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it would take a lot of investment on your first note, but the stimulus dollars. I think we've all seen that chart. Um, it reminded me because there was that uh, drop. Dr- I always say drunken Miller. It's drunken Miller. Uh, he, when he had his op-ed and stuff, he had the chart of retail sales just totally going through the roof. They're up like three years off of the long-term trend. I think if you see that, you should expect Afterpay to have a few good quarters. Um, and if not, that might actually be a bad sign about their, uh, their market penetration. Yeah. Uh, now, I'll get to my growth opportunity, but I think I just kind of thought of one now, which is making easy inroads with like Wix or something. Shopify too. Potentially. I know Sezzle has one with Squarespace, so I, it, yeah. it seems like a logical step. Uh, but Afterpay card is something they've talked about. So this is basically a contactless MasterCard that can be stored in your Apple wallet or Google Pay. Um, and I, it doesn't, I don't see any reason why buy now, pay later doesn't work for in-person transactions. I think the model still applies. And they, they do have that, yeah. Yeah, and they've, I think they've, so they've rolled this out in the US, I think in 2019. I'm not sure if they've rolled it out anywhere else. But this seems like a really logical thing to do, uh, and especially maybe it's just my personal bias, but I would like using that. Um, maybe it's like a U.S. thing, but I like having that card being able to, or at least being able to pay in person. What's weird is I get panicked that I'm going to do it wrong if I do something else. And cards, like it takes like 10 seconds or whatever versus something that's tapped, but I get worried that I'm going to look like an idiot, which is really yeah. the only reason I still use card. And uh, I, I think this is integral to... Uh, once shopping goes, you know, if there's any sort of reversion away from e-commerce and back to in-person transactions being still a part of that, uh, I think they have to have this. Yeah. And it would be nice. Yeah. I mean, it should apply to in-person versus online should be really the same thing. I mean, the concept is just to kind of give yourself a steady payment stream instead of having to spend three, 400 bucks all at once. Uh, But I'll hit mine. This is a small one and it's kind of just indicative of another future growth opportunity they have, but they acquired this small company called uh, Settle Up Bayer, and they have a few other names because it's uh, from Singapore, so the name ha- is in a foreign language, but it's a Singapore company that does buy now, pay later in Indonesia. They acquired it for $2 million, so tiny acquisition right now, but really, like, it, if they're going to try to be a global platform, sort of like, you know, the pie-in-the-sky stuff here is like Visa, MasterCard, or PayPal, or something like that, you need to establish inroads in these countries early because you want to get that more, uh, merchant growth rate and the consumer growth rate too. Because if you uh, say you're 10% market penetrated versus someone that just enters and they're at 1%, that is a huge advantage. Um, as you can see, like when Visa and MasterCard got established and stuff like that, it's the moat that you can build up within these countries can be strong. So yeah. I just think going to those international countries, you know, take advantage while you can. But uh, let's wrap things up with the show uh, highlights and lowlights. Brad, we'll start with you. Yeah, actually going back to uh, your ac- talk on the acquisition that, I mean, just a general note, that is my favorite kind of M&A a company can do. Just a really cheap, really small acquisition to, to enter a new territory and maybe to 
and to and to collect licensing and 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 permission to to operate in a new country. I mean, uh, we see companies like Okta spending billions of dollars on on their largest competitor, and I mean, just juxtaposing that with this, I just I prefer that route of M and A. So. Thank yeah, you two, two million up. versus uh, what was Okta, and not nothing against it, but it was like six and a half billion, or like three times Okta's trailing twelve month sales, or something pretty crazy. But yeah, the, the yeah. big difference. Highlights and low. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, my bad. Uh, highlight. So for the level of growth that it's posting, uh, a seventy three percent gross margin and positive EBITDA, mar- EBITDA margins is is not something to, to to overlook. I think that's impressive, encouraging, and, and somewhat unique in this environment. Um, and with that, uh, a transition or a transition in my low light, um, the extremely asset light, uh, high margin business model is always going to attract um, really deep pocketed competitive entrance. And, and I don't think that's any different here. So I, I kind of almost view this like, like Robinhood um, with, with the race to zero commissions among stock brokerages. And maybe if Visa and MasterCard and Amex figure out another way to monetize besides charging interest, this could become a race to zero. And then credit cards would actually be the exact same thing as, as um, what this company is offering. So, so that's my low light. I don't know how, um, I don't know how sustainable this, this moat, I, I don't like using the term moat very often, but I'll use it here. I don't know how sustainable that is. And the people that or the companies that could kind of come after them are all very deep pocketed and capable. Yeah, and you have Walmart written down here. I think that example does make sense where they have a lot of customer accounts. They have a lot of customer cards, uh, I'm assuming, and they have a fintech offering coming out. Um, there's no reason they can't do that. Uh, but then with Visa and MasterCard, there's also the classic, and this is a cliche, but there's the innovator's dilemma where they're making so much money off of credit cards right now that turning that off would crush their margins. So yeah, you have to take that into consideration as well. Um, Ryan, what are yours? Highlights. Uh, well, I just really like the business model all in all. And I think people underappreciate, especially older people. I think uh, I, people my age, uh, there is a stigma with credit, especially credit cards. I don't know anyone that uses them. Uh, well, I guess maybe some, but people really don't like credit cards at our age. And there is like this looming fear of getting yourself in personal debt. Uh, and there's been a lot of sort of scare stories that you're told, I think, growing up that you want, don't want credit card debt. No, that's just propaganda from big buy now, pay later. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> that's just afterpay marketing. But so yeah, probably. Uh, but then the customer core ho- cohort uh, scales pretty well, and it should lean towards the better customers over time. If you just get rid of the people that aren't, uh, if they have a late fee and they don't pay, they can't join, right? So logically, it gets better as you grow, which lowers the loss ratios. Um and then uh, I also like the fact that they aren't going, it seems like a company that could go after some super app strategy, one of those fintech oh, super, super apps, just super like, app. yeah, everyone's like cash app. Yeah. I kind of like that they don't, they're not doing this and they're kind of keeping their eye on the ball and really focusing on the merchants and just being that easy transaction between the merchants and the customers. Um, so generally I like that, I like management, I like the business model. Low lights for me, I think Venmo would have a really easy inroad to the crowd that Afterpay is going for, especially in North America. Um, PayPal announced they're doing it. I assume they're going to put on demo. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I read something that like they, they kind of botched it with this. Maybe, maybe, maybe I was looking at the wrong thing, but um, it just feels like that could have a really successful competing product. Um, sure. And that would be the biggest fear because PayPal is already on most merchants payment options. 
like uh, available available payment options if you can get some sort of afterpay or buy sorry bnpl buy now pay later option with it just seems like it makes a lot of sense um, yeah the interesting thing about venmo is that they've really it seems like they they've had struggle expanding yeah they've had trouble upselling to more products than p2p payments where cash app has crushed it getting people to use things that actually make money uh, for Square or PayPal, I don't know. They've kind of dropped the ball the last few years on that. I mean, I've I've gone to like barbershops. I mean, this isn't really the perfect fit, but I've gone to like barbershops where they're like, hey, do you just take a Venmo? Which sounds like it might be a money laundering scheme. They're like, yeah. But they just don't want to be negative official. Yeah. yeah. And so like maybe if you can do that with a retail small business. Yeah. Uh, don't out your barber. <laughs> uh, we don't want to get <laughs> Sorry. <in> <laughs> it's a new barber. <laughs> Sorry if you listen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of my low light, I guess. It's just the PayPal, PayPal Venmo risk. Okay, I'll hit, I'll hit mine. Uh, I'll talk about some of the consumer trends here. I think there's really good consumer trends. As Hayden Capital mentioned in the report, and there's like 10 times as many things here that they really show that the tailwind is phenomenal here. So they mentioned that only one third of Americans under 30 have a credit card, which is a lot lower than past generations. Um, makes me feel like it's not outlandish to expect over 100 million buy now pay later users in the US some point, at some point this decade. But the question is, as we've talked about, all right, who are they going to go to? Are there going to be people that are using, you know, Afterpay, PayPal, and the firm? Are you going to use all of them? Or are people going to stick with one team, uh, one company? I don't know. But, you know, strong execution so far. It seems like they're really outworking their competition. Um, I don't, I haven't looked at a firm with Klarna deeply, but it seems like Afterpay is executing a lot here. Um, Lowlights, though, bad cash flow dynamics. They're really like... Uh, it can look bad, I guess, on a, like a, uh, just a time stamp cash flow from a quarter. But with those receivables where they're waiting, like they, you know, they're realizing a lot of this revenue, but they're waiting for the customer receivables. Um, that just makes it so they have to, it's kind of the opposite of like a company say, I guess an easy example is like Amazon who can make sure that, or, you know, talk to their suppliers and say like, all right, we're not going to pay you for this for 60 days. We're going to pay it, but we're going to keep this cash. And that's a positive working capital dynamic that can help with cash flow. But Afterpay is kind of the opposite. Um, mm. And it's not a giant risk because they're kind of turning over these loans in a six-week period. But yeah, I don't know. And then lastly, I'm kind of worried that Afterpay is just a product and not a company. But it seems like they're trying to make it more than just that. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the risk is that there's like these high late fees, right? Or people choose not to pay the late fees or whatever, uh, or they don't pay on time. But as we talked about, even, well, it should get better over time. Even if they pay on time though, you're still waiting for the, to get the customer deposits back. So they have a ton. Then that receivables is yeah. only going to go up over time, but their loss ratios have improved quite a bit. I think the number was like 1% a little while ago and it's down to like 0.7%. So that's a, that's a great. Hey, those late fees are high margin. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I think... I don't know if they want to do. I don't know if they want to juice that over time. I think, I think they're trying to fix the the fee part of the, the credit card industry. But let's wrap things up. More or less interested. Excuse me. More or less interested, Brad. What do you have here? Um, uh, this was harder. This was harder for me than any other episode we've done. But I think I am going to go with less interested on this one. Uh, it's it checks a lot of boxes, but especially in this field, I, I am going back to my Robin Hood comparison. I just, I feel like I'd be more comfortable if I was going to have exposure with a PayPal or with a Visa, because I, I don't see that 3.85, I think it was percent take rate as being sustainable. I see it eroding very quickly when these large, deep pocketed, immensely profitable companies inevitably enter this space. So 
Um, it looks awesome right now, uh, but I, I, yeah, less interested because I don't know how much longer that can last. So, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on like valuation either or? Well, I mean, 33 times sales uh, is a little more palatable when the margins are, when, when the 73% gross margin and positive EBITDA margins. But I mean, in this environment where a company like Upstart after a monster quarter raises their revenue forecast 20 more percent um, and it doesn't matter. I think high valuation is just going to get penalized and punished no matter what for now. All right, and, I, and I'm long a lot of high valuation growth stocks. So, so I'm, I'm saying that fully knowing that or full, kind of expecting that myself. So Yeah. It seems like a lot of these stocks, uh, I kind of got reminded about this earlier today. I read something where there's a big thing that the, I think the Molly fool talks about if you're an individual investor, kind of the buying third strategy where you might just nibble a little bit now, if you think it's overvalued, all right, then maybe they execute or the price improves. But, you know, if you want to, you might want to just save a little cash on the side. If you really like Afterpay, um, obviously do your own research, but the, the buy and third strategy can be kind of helpful. Uh, but Ryan, what do you have more or less interested? I'm more interested. Um, the valuation is a bit of a steep hurdle for me. And I saw like a Bill Gurley tweet this week that made it a bit of a steep hurdle for me. Cause he's like, listen, if, if the public markets want to bid up every fintech player to 30 times sales, we have plenty to give them. Yeah. I was like, Ooh, he's talking about afterpay. All right. <laughs> but, uh, and it just made, you know, it, I think you can sometimes grow immune to multiples after a while. Um, especially when this was trading at whatever 50 or 60 times sales and you're like, Oh, you know, this is more enticing. It's still a steep multiple to pay. So you just, yeah, I guess maybe take that third strategy. Uh, it'd have to do more valuation work. Yeah, but it seems like there's a lot of uh, sustainability to the growth. I think this could grow at a quick rate for a long time. Yeah, within a year. And there's the network effects. Yeah, within a year, you could easily see this sales ratio and even, well, it depends uh, what kind of margins you think they're going to have. Hayden Capital estimated that their Australian margins were 40% uh, at scale. So that's pretty damn strong. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can see a world where the sales ratio goes down quite a bit. I mean, the historical growth rate, U.S. is growing so fast. But again, I'm in the same boat as you guys. I think uh, I'm on the fence. It's maybe slightly less interested just because the valuation is so extreme. And if you add that in with the fact that they have a ton of competition coming, where, yeah, if they execute, it could be fine. But there's just a lot of risk here. Now, like, do, do Visa... And MasterCard. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about Visa and MasterCard. I'm worried about PayPal here. Yeah, I would say like if they're making all that money on interest, do they want to offer an interest-free microloan? No, that's the whole thing. Yeah, Visa and MasterCard. The thing is, I don't think they're that worried. And Afterpay is still on the Visa and MasterCard rails, so you know they're not going to be too upset. But PayPal or someone like that, uh, I think that, especially in the United States, where they have such a high high inroads with Venmo. yeah, but we'll see. I mean, there's definitely a world where Afterpay 10x is its revenue from here. I think there's a clear path to execute, but yeah. what are the chances of that? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to wrap things up. But before we do, Ryan, why don't you tell everyone what the stock is going to be for next week? We've got Wish. Yeah. What is? What do they do? Uh, I think there's some marketplace. I don't know. I guess we'll see next week. But I know they well, raised capital at like 11 billion in a private round, and now their enterprise value is like three and a half billion. So oh, it's come right. down a lot. All right, and uh, they're an online marketplace, so obviously they have a phenomenal moat, right? Because our every friend, company that has a marketplace is <laughs> it has a moat. Uh, you know, 
Yeah. No, was a joke. Uh, our friend Sean Emery has uh, tweeted about it a few times, so it kind of caught my eye. And I think the old uh, head of finance from Square is the new executive chair. So oh, obvious. Then then it's then it's got to be a buy. She's good. She's yeah. pretty good. All right, uh, Brad. Anything else before we wrap things up? You know, I have a I have a personal anecdote about Wish, so that'll be the first time I get to comment in that section. So so that'll be fun. I'm excited. All right, a little anticipation there, but that's going to wrap things up for us. Thank you all for listening. Uh, as a reminder, check out potential multibaggers and remember that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Again, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.